Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Gullio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 37, we're discussing Excalibur 36, X's and O's, in which Brian Braddock wants to marry nuclear power. Guest starring Silver Sable and the Outlaws. <laughs> Excalibur number 36 was originally published in April 1991, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, David Ross on pencils, Al Milgram on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Chris Eliopoulos on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. We have won battles against armies, and our one man defeats all my knights. He's a mighty opponent. We're joined by our first returning guest this week who requested this issue specifically, so I hope he can commit to carrying the conversation about it. I'll reintroduce <laughs> him in a moment, but first, your regular research team. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write about stuff and talk about stuff, including too much Nightcrawler stuff. <laughs> That's what happens when you become Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. More broadly, I write and talk about stuff related to gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture. Relevant to the comic book issue at hand, I've got an academic book Book chapter about Fantastic Four coming out in a month or two that includes a section discussing the sexual symbolism of Sandman's powers. So maybe we can talk about that today. We will see if we get to it. Mav, if you'd like to say a few words about yourself. Hi, I'm Mav. I, I do stuff with stuff too. <laughs> at, this, at this point in the podcast i like assume people know who we are but i'm still like i'm in, i enjoy the intros and there's still a chance that yeah. someone could jump in here right well yeah and, and well i mean sure and you should i mean this show is very much a designed to be read along so it, you know there's a there's a we're 20 no god we're 36 issues in plus <laughs> 30, yeah 38 episodes in for us so yeah you should be welcome to us but you know I, i'm christopher maverick you can call me mav I, i'm an academic i study gender and sexuality and race and pop culture 20th century i have another show called vox popcast and, and see there it makes sense because like no one is supposed to read or listen to all of that show that is just a you know we, t we move from topic to topic but here we're doing we're, we're we're gonna read all of these even if they're bad you know hint <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, so we're gonna read all the good issues and all the bad issues and and today is um not the first of those <laughs> oh dear <laughs> andrew would you like to say a few words about yourself hi i'm dr andrew demand i'm a lecturer at saint Jerome's university and the project lead for the claremont run 
a big social media study of Claremont's work and legacy. I'm also someone who takes Kitty's hot take on nuclear power surprisingly personal, because please don't make Kitty a shill for the fossil fuel lobby, and Brian was objectively right. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about that. So that, weird. That, 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 that's an interesting. Uh, we might we might have a topic here because I think I, I, I think that she's. I think it was complicated. I don't think Brian was objectively right. I don't think Kitty's objectively right either. I just think that um, Liddell doesn't actually understand the debate that he was trying to have them have. <laughs> Yeah, I do actually want to talk about that, especially within the cultural context of 1991. So we will actually come back to that. But first, let us introduce our returning guest, our dear friend, co-host of Three Pinal Contrast with Andrew and I, Dr. Michael Hancock. Welcome, Michael. Hello. Would you like to tell, because usually I do a bio, but we've already done your bio once, Michael. So do you want an opportunity to remind our lovely listeners who, of course, remember you from our previous episode on Excalibur number 11, but remind our lovely listeners of what you get up to? Yeah, um, I am a lecturer at mostly uh, the University of Waterloo and a bit at Wilfrid Laurier. My interest areas include a lot of lectures on video games, comic books, and for this month in particular, I am all about that Frankenstein. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) We're doing a three-panel contrast about Frankenstein comics, which I I haven't read yet, Michael, but I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's, It's on my docker for this weekend. We, we've done on Vox Popcast, we've done several um, episodes where we devote to monster studies. Um, so we've talked about Frankenstein quite a bit. And in fact, at time of recording, I guess, <laughs> I think, um, but probably for our listeners a month ago, because it's Halloween time, we just released an episode all about Dracula, um, where, Frank is, where Frankenstein comes up. So, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a classic team up. It's a classic universal team up. It's a classic universal team up. Plus there's like, a well, I don't want to spoil, spoil their other show and go listen to my, to my other show, but there's a, there's a connection in their genesis as well from when Mary Shelley created, uh, created Frankenstein. There's a Dracula connection that I, that I was unaware of until we did that episode. So um, yeah, Frankenstein, good book. Everybody should go read it. <laughs> in fact, you know, we could talk about Frankenstein for the next hour if you guys we would could. Rather. We could. <laughs> I know that Michael would have many excellent thoughts about that, but we're going to save it for the three panel contest and we'll have people link to that I as tried. well. <laughs> yeah, we've, got our, we've got a monstrous creation right here. <laughs> we do indeed. But Michael, since you are a returning guest, I'm not going to do though. When did you discover X-Men and Excalibur thing with you again? But I am interested to know whether you've been following along with the series, like as we've been podcasting about it. If so, you don't have to have, so no pressure. But if so, so, did you have thoughts about this transition from the Claremont era to the Psy Lobdell era in which we currently <laughs> find ourselves? Actually, yeah. The the podcast got me reading Excalibur for, I mean, I, I think I talked about this on the previous episode that I had read Excalibur in bits and pieces before, but it really convinced me to sit down and actually go through it. And I, I kept up with it. I think I've read up to the where Marvel Unlimited cuts off. Oh, okay, the, yeah. Wherever that oh, jump yeah. is. So yeah, you, you got me hooked. Well, what has been kind of your reaction as you've been following along? Like, did you notice a big change from the end of the Claremont era into this one? Did you have any reaction to this long string of fill-in issues that we've been stuck in? I'm basically like, what's your mood coming into this issue today? It's interesting, like... Because I started reading 
comics, I think, later than some. My first encounter of Claremont had been his return to the X-Men, mm. uh, <laughs> yes. which is not uh, always a fond era. So I, and I've never gone back and read the full, like, him at his height. So even with Excalibur, I'm kind of a little mixed on Excalibur, even on his run at times, but then you start reading the what other people try to do, and it's like, oh no, Chris Claremont had something there, and they do not. <laughs> oh, it must have been such a big shock for you, going from the revolution era X-Men, in which Nightcrawler's doing things like having a sexy trapeze act with Cerise, and then telling her his body belongs to God, so they can't kiss. <laughs> Fun times back then. That was that was the run of comics in which Nightcrawler became a priest for our listeners who are not mm-hmm. aware. Um, for, but yeah, for being, like your least favorite story that comes up so much, which is <laughs> I know I know how much you hate it personally. But like... well, the X Men of Revolution one I'm almost fascinated by just because it's so strange and it's so far in the past that I'm not like offended by it at this point. But um, but anyway, <laughs> so Michael, I'd like to sort of unpack this a little bit more because you've said that you had mixed feelings about the Claremont run of Excalibur but let's get into that a little bit because you joined us before the cross time caper happened so Mm -hmm. thoughts on the caper that was um a little long (laughs) i mean Uh, yeah ended with not a whimper or a bang but just kind of just coasting along until i guess a train just comes to a stop and you're not sure why it stopped there in particular but i guess it's over (laughs) yeah that is pretty much how it ended yes I don't know. I'm still going to push you on it a little bit. Like, I mean, okay. It it did have a lot of, there was a lot of fun, like all of the playful stuff Claremont did with genre, especially in the earlier parts of that, that was like with the uh, fairy tale stuff with the manga stuff, even the later judge dread type stuff. That was, yeah, I like that a lot. So where do you feel that we're at when it's come into this kind of fill in issue kind of era? I mean, again, did you feel that kind of abrupt change? We're just coming off girls school from heck as well. Yeah. I think the previous issue, issue 35, that was Lobdell yeah. too. And yeah. But like, this is the one that feels to me like, He's trying to do something a little more than a one-off. He's trying to more capture the spirit of Excalibur. And what I find fascinating about this comic is that, that like, it feels so cover bandy that this mm, is someone yeah. trying to do not just Claremont, but Excalibur Claremont and not doing it well. Yeah, well, maybe we'll come back to it in some first impressions and get into this issue specifically and go through that issue summary before we do that, because I want to hear your expanded thoughts about that, because I think you're right. This is sort of Lobdell becoming the regular writer for a little bit, and he's sort of putting his stamp on it more and more as we're going along, so we can come back to that. Uh, But first, let's do that issue summary. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We measure our lives by your love and respect. But as usual, let's compare notes with a plot summary. Excalibur number 36 opens by reminding us, hey, remember how Brian Braddock used to be a scientist? Now you do because we flash back to five years ago at the Darkmoor Research Facility where a younger Brian is slumped at his desk after working too hard trying to bring about a better tomorrow. A kindly mentor type, Professor Walsh, rouses him from his slumber and sends the lad home to rest. In the present, Excalibur arrive at the Darkmoor Nuclear Facility amid a sea of anti-nuclear protesters who claim the research facility is conducting dangerous experiments. All of the members of of Excalibur are uncomfortable interfering with the protest, except Brian, who, as I mentioned above, is deeply in love with nuclear power. Excalibur is there as a favor to Brian, who's in turn doing a favor for his old mentor, Professor Walsh. 
Inside the facility and away from the protesters, Kitty, Brian, and Dr. Walsh continue to debate the merits of nuclear power until we're all grateful for the wall exploding, heralding the arrival of some heroes for hire, but not those ones. These ones are the outlaws. They are Silver Sable, Sandman, Paladin, and Rocket Racer. A fight ensues, which also reveals bad guy turned good guy the Prowler, who's been working undercover at the lab. Amid the fight, we learn the outlaws are in the employ of the Simcarian government, who want a device called a bionuclear simulator returned to them. This sentence is straight from the Marvel Wiki summary, but it's too good not to share. In the lab, Sandman and Captain Britain fight, during which Captain Britain tries to educate Sandman on English slang. Eventually, we discover new layers of the convoluted plot. Dr. Walsh has been making and killing clones in an effort to create a nuclear war-resistant strain of humanity. Walsh also tears off his skin to reveal himself as a faulty forgotten robot built by Captain America foe Arnim Zola. A bunch of stuff happens that's annoying to describe, but I will try. Everyone realizes the nuclear reactor is messed up, and then the clones come to life and start attacking everybody, and then Kitty tries to disrupt the Walsh robot by phasing through it, which awakens a huge monster known as the Shepherd. Basically, everybody bans together to fight clones and monsters until Walsh tells Brian the only way to stop the nuclear meltdown. He has to kill Walsh, the robot he thought was a man who he thought was his mentor. Brian won't do it, but Megan steps up to do it. The clones and the shepherd deactivate what Walsh does and everybody gets to go home, but not before Brian shares a tender moment with the dying Walsh, reminiscing about their shared love for, you guessed it, nuclear power. Okay, if it wasn't clear from that summary, I don't particularly <laughs> enjoy this comic. Um, it's annoying and difficult to understand in ways that do not respect my intelligence. But uh, Michael, <laughs> you requested this issue and you already got into some of your first impressions. So why do you love this issue? Try to talk me into it. A few different things. First, I I know there are some uh, Lobdell issues with him as a creative figure, but... You can just I... say human being, that's fine. <laughs> But um, my first uh, superhero comic, when I got into them to a point where I was reading them regularly, was Uncanny X-Men 346 that he wrote. And it's a really nice story about J. Jonah Jameson, of all people, standing up for journalistic integrity against Bastion and Spider-Man fights Marrow. And it's like a perfect introductory issue, even though it's in the middle of this weird, massive crossover. and there's some nostalgia from that. It doesn't hide the fact that uh, the rest of that story is not so great involving X-Men and weird gambit connections and just all sorts of nonsense. Uh, (laughs) It's like the early 90s and X-Men, weird gambit connections. (laughs) Yep. And this issue in particular, I always like the idea of the foil team, that each Mm. one of them gets a moment where they contrast with one of the members of Excalibur, some done better than others. But again, it's so easy to do a generic villain team where a bunch of weirdos show up, they have one-off powers, and that's it. These are at least established characters, and I always like the idea of the, well, established-ish. They have, they have, okay, they're established in the sense that that they've all appeared in Spider-Man multiple times. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But like, I, I have a softness for that kind of character arc and plotline. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Thunderbolts series or what was one? Oh, uh, this came out at roughly the same time as this issue, actually. There's a Avengers special of, that's very 90s in its title. Avengers colon death trap colon the vault. The vault. Oh, yes. The Quasar yeah. story. Uh, I think this is a different is it, Oh, one. is it not? Uh, the idea is that 
Venom gets control of the vault. Oh, that's not what I'm thinking of. The Avengers are called in, but also Mystique's Freedom Force is called in. Oh. And there's all this tension that like, well, of course, Freedom Force is going to betray us kind of thing. And that kind of tension between with the team that you don't know quite what they're going to do. And sometimes they don't even know what they're going to do. Yeah, I like that kind of thing. I don't think it works as well here, but it's more than just a misunderstandings fight. Also, the last third, the last third is almost Bob Haney in the level of just lots of stuff just keeps happening. I don't think it reaches the pure like joy of a Haney because he's trying too hard to go for pathos, but I appreciate the attempt. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I should say, like, just my thing about not liking this issue, I mean, there's a few specific things, but you know, the difference between like, sort of a good bad movie and like a bad bad movie, to me, the difference between a good bad movie and a bad bad movie is that a good bad movie is weird enough to be funny and interesting. And for me, this comic isn't weird enough to be funny or interesting. And that's what frustrates me about it. Because even when I think about Excalibur 29, you know, the nightmare issue with the power pack team up, and they had all the dream sequences and everything that comic was at least weird i don't enjoy it i don't like what we got in that comic but it was weird enough that i was like okay there's something we could talk about here and this comic frustrates me because i feel like it's not weird enough to really grab me but i do like that idea that you're bringing up michael about the interest of having them interact with another team because i mean we've seen that work well in excalibur before obviously with technet but do you know because you were reading other comics featuring Silver Sable and Wild Pack, were you not? And that was one of the reasons that you were interested in this issue, or am I um, misremembering? Less so. I'm Okay, I've sorry. Read, I've read like them individually, but no, not a lot of Sable herself. I've read them all. So <laughs> I'm actually a big Silver Silver Sable fan. <laughs> which is odd, so that might have been me. Well, if you're a big Silver Sable fan, Mav, do you want to tell us yeah. a little bit about her? Okay. Because she was a relatively new character at this point in time in 1991. Um, she, was, she was relatively new to anybody actually caring about her. Um, she'd been around a few years. So she first appears in like 85. So it had been a bit. No one pays attention to her. She's a, she's a side character in Spider-Man comics every once in a while. And the concept when she first shows up is that she's generically a lady bounty hunter that's what you know about her and that's like all the story she's given she's she's hunting this guy named crimson fox she's a generic 80s character but that was the 80s as we move closer and closer into the 90s and we have you know what 90s superhero comics became the concept of being a lady and the concept of being a violent bounty hunter were both very much in vogue. So like yeah. this becomes more and more of a thing. And Marvel gets to this point in the early 90s where they really want to make Silver Sable happen. And I like the character because I thought that uh, so the the character backstory as she appears in Spider-Man is she, you know, when they flush as she's being flushed out, she's not just a bounty hunter. What she is is she's a diplomat. She's from this country called Simcaria, which is a neighboring country to Latveria, which which, you know, comic fans will know is the home of Dr. Doom. And she is a diplomat, but she's sort of the anti-Doom. She's trying to be a good guy. But they go on these missions because her father had founded this group called the Wild Pack during the war, ambiguously the war, you know, probably World War II when they wrote it. But like at this point, since time, just linear time in the Marvel Universe is what it is. It's the war. And her and she inherits it after inherits the group after her father's uh, done and she uses these missionary these mercenary missions to um you know sort of fund her country and she really is a good person 
And she would appear in Spider-Man. She'd have a run in here or there with the Avengers because who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And people don't trust her, but she's actually a good person. The outlaws are the superpowered. They stop calling on the outlaws pretty quickly um, once once her series starts, but they're the superpowered version of the Wild Pack. The Wild Pack is a whole bunch of her private army is the Wild Pack. And then she's got like five or six operatives that like are superpowered. She called them the outlaws because they were all outlaws in Spider-Man comics. It was a very bad idea and that goes away, but that's what her solo series is about. Um, it's largely her and Paladin, who's not actually in, in a criminal at all. Her and Paladin running a team that includes Rocket Racer and Prowler and Sandman. And off and on, other characters, eventually Battlestar from Captain America Comics joins up. And it's very 90s-ish, but it's trying to do something different. So that's why I liked it. I found it refreshing at the time. Not that I was the most discerning reader in the world. But at the time, I found it refreshing and I liked the concept of the character. Because it's sort of a, you know, what if Doctor Doom tried to be good, but she doesn't have any powers or anything. She's just, you know... She's got like Batman money, which she does, <laughs> you know? So um, that said, this is kind of a backdoor pilot because Silver Sable and the Wild Pack, the comic wouldn't start for like another six months after this. So clearly yeah, they're trying to like, they're trying to make this happen. And I get the feeling that someone told Labdell, okay, here's who we're thinking of having on the team because they the, the um, characters had appeared in some Spider-Man comics and Avengers comics. So we knew they were working with Sable. And someone clearly told Labdell, all right, you've got Prowler, you've got uh, Rocket Racer, you've got Paladin, you've got... And then he read the Marvel Universe handbook entries and that's it. That's all the research he did because there's no, there's nothing even approaching characterization of where these people were in Spider-Man or Avengers comics or where they would be in the, in the wild pack comic six months later, nothing here makes sense. You know, the fact that Paladin specifically is yelling and my, my gun stuns people cause it's a stun gun. This is actual dialogue <laughs> from this comic. Why, no one talks like this. Just say I'm shooting them with a the stun gun. And pe- we'll pick it up, you know, or just say it's a gun. It's superhero comics. We're fine. We, we, we can work through this. And then, um, you know, or like Prowler saying, you know, the scientific term for air is pneumatics. And let's do. And then he uses <laughs> oh God, so science, bad. but doesn't explain like Lubdell doesn't seem to understand how air works. I don't know. <laughs> it's so weird. It's a weird comic. It is a weird comic. Well, I mean, Michael, you mentioned that you didn't think the team to team dynamics was as effective here as in other comics. Uh, why? I mean, <laughs> what would you have liked to see more of if you were going to kind of make this a more interesting matchup between those two teams? Well, I think the big one is uh, so the last episode i was on uh, also had a weird sexual assault move yeah and so yeah. does this one that's where i'd start yeah <laughs> yeah that is just sort of inexcusable i mean andrew we haven't got your first impressions yet if you want to take first crack at that one you certainly can <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we were talking about it a little bit last episode. You can kind of trace Lubdell's perspective on women in, in the way he talks about them. Like sometimes it's very subtle and other times it's superhero force kisses. Sorry, super in between hero and villain guy force kisses Rachel as a way to distract her. Like it's eh. <laughs> you reflect on it knowing what we know now. It, it just it really stands out. It's a problem. 
And I mean, we've talked about this before with Rachel, you know, getting her off the board by emotionally distracting her. But this is by far the most egregious example. Like we just have her being stunned and then swooning and then Paladin just kisses her and we don't even get a reaction from Rachel. She is just completely pacified by this kiss and wooed by this kiss because she's shown to be smitten with Paladin after this. It's just if you're a fan of Rachel on any level, this is just going to make you like put the comic on a dartboard and throw knives at it it's just really really bad yeah and for the second issue in a row too right mm-hmm. i hadn't reread this issue at the time that we recorded the last episode so i was kind of we did a lot of talking about how we thought the story there was actually quite complex and if not perfect mm-hmm. at least interesting and not here. reading this one <laughs> right after that yeah it's making me look back on that one a lot less generously because this is just so bad that, well, that's why the, I don't think he knows what he's doing yet. <laughs> I'm trying to. We'll, we'll, we've said we're going to talk more about Lobdell and his issues, and I don't think they're ignorable here because of because of that moment. But to be fair to him, he's a better writer than this. This is garbage. It's garbage where he didn't do his research because honestly, this doesn't even make sense for Paladin. That's not the kind of like if you've seen him and he, he's he's a generic character from Contest of Champions who's had moments here and there, you know. But this is not, I think it's Contest of Champions is his first period, but it doesn't matter. He's, he shows up from time to time. This is not his character. It, it literally just seems to be like, well, I know he's a secret agent mercenary kind of character. So I don't know. What would James Bond do? He'd probably kiss somebody. Like that's how much thought was put into this. It would have been lazy for James Bond. This book feels lazy, not bad. It feels like no one knew because we haven't even start, started talking about the story yet which makes no sense the characters make no sense rachel spends the entire book going not only just swooning after him but like going i can't fight here because i'm thinking too hard you guys better fight <laughs> <laughs> i'm busy thinking over here what are you talking about like nothing makes sense here well that was going to be one of my questions was talking about what makes a comic bad and we're kind of getting into it now anyway so maybe we can kind of backtrack and talk about what for us does make a comic bad it's certainly been something that we've talked about on the podcast before because we've talked about some issues that were less stellar issues but this one i just it does stand out to me as just being bad for some of the ways that we've already talked about that just you know in terms of it not making sense in terms of it not having the characterization in terms of the art not being strong enough to elevate it there's just a lot to kind of complain about here so i mean what about that question i'll put it to you michael guest's privilege like what for you makes a comic well i'll say specifically a serialized superhero comic book bad because we deal with a lot when we're reading serialized superhero comic books you know not every issue is going to be great we're dealing with time pressures we're dealing with a lot of different pressures right we're dealing with just the challenge of producing an intro interesting serialized story that's continuing month after month or in this case it was going bi-monthly so it was even more pressure but when we talk about a bad comic is that a purely subjective thing or are there certain things that we can come back to as sort of if we're going to if we're going to do like a a phenomenology of a bad comic Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we can academicize this a little bit school words what, what are your thoughts yeah <laughs> well i maybe this is a little bit of the tolstoy thing every good comic is the same but every bad comic is bad in its own individual way ah yes um, but actually i i think there are many ways for a comic to go bad and some that are specific to superheroes, some that are specific to the characters being depicted, some that are specific to even the writer and artist or the serial nature of it. 
for example, one way this goes bad. If you pulled this comic out of the series, does it make any difference? Not really. No. Uh, if anything, no. it might improve your impression of it. So yes, that's a that's a sign of a bad comic, I think. Does it have characters acting in inexplicable ways that don't fit with previous characterizations? Yes, that's a problem. Does it have a climax that comes out of nowhere and seems to rely on some pathos that was never sufficiently established? Also, yes. And I think those are all things that you could, you know, extract from this and apply to other comics as well. Well, we haven't heard much from you, Andrew. And, you know... We're coming off the Claremont era. We're in the Lobdell era. I imagine you have thoughts about this particular issue. What to you makes this a bad comic? I think it actually affords the opportunity to think about that exactly as you're saying, which I kind of like. Um, for me, one of the pivotal things that makes a comic bad and specifically that makes Claremont's work good is self-respect. And I don't mean <laughs> of the author, but of the medium. Yeah. Uh, you want a comic yeah. that wants to be good, not a comic that feels like someone was lazy and just trying to go through the motions, right? And Lobdell is going through the motions here. Uh, there's nothing aspirational to be detected here. Where I would argue in the previous issue, I think he was going for something kind of cool. Um, I, I don't think the execution was perfect, as Mav said, but I think it was trying to be something really, you know, impactful. Here... It does try to be impactful at the end, as we said, but in a really lazy way. Uh, it's just throwing stuff at the wall. Again, he probably didn't do his homework. His tonal shift from the previous issue is jarring in terms of his narrative voice, where he's like dark and serious in like like Christian Bale's Batman kind of way in the previous issue. Like, I feel like an editor gave him a note saying, have you read any Excalibur? It's jovial. Uh, and he just kind of brutally overcompensated with this kind of awkward campy humor uh that he's putting into his narrative voice here so so all of it feels scattershot all of it feels again like it doesn't have that self-respect as a comic and we can think about that in terms of the way it affects us as readers of serialized superhero comics too right because you know we're always frustrated right <laughs> i mean i feel like that thing of what defines an x-men fan is that you're always angry at x-men comics and I, you know i'm joking because i love so many x-men comics i genuinely do we're doing this whole podcast about excalibur because we for the most part love it dearly but there is a thing where month after month it's soliciting your emotional investment and when sometimes it doesn't feel like it's respecting that emotional investment that produces certain emotions because you know it's depending on you being actively engaged in it month to month you know it'd be like if we did an episode of the podcast in which we just completely phoned it in and we're doing a good job and you know didn't respect our listeners you know that's like and we didn't hope bother to read the book we exactly <laughs> yeah. and we hope we never do that we will try our very best never to do that but that's what this comic book feels like right it feels insulting on a certain level like i was insulted having to read it and then type up notes about it and plan an hour <laughs> and 10 minute conversation about it it made me angry i think he tried for like the first four or five pages because so, yeah, yeah, and, and so, so here's what's interesting to me. I'm going to put some sh some spit shine on this, right? <laughs> um, first off, I, I, I like the character of Silver Sable. I appreciate someone trying to use her. Yay. But also the discussion between, you know, of nuclear power versus fossil fuel usage versus like who's protesting and who is who are the superheroes here to help? You know, should we be out of politics altogether, as Kurt says? And it, like, there's an interesting thing that someone is, you know, I, and presumably Labdell, you know, maybe it was editorially controlled, but I, I would imagine this is Scott Labdell said, "Hey, 
here's an interesting thought experiment to do. Where do superheroes fall on issues like this? And I thought it was really interesting that like they get there and Captain Britain's like, well, we've got to go to this to this event. And everybody's like, all right, you're you're right. We go. And then when they get there, they don't realize that they're even on different sides. And that's fascinating. It goes away after page five. Like they just forgot they were having that conversation and it never comes back. And I think the idea of how nuclear power worked in the 1990s and 1991 was a very complicated issue, much like a lot of politics now are very complicated issues that people tried to simplify and they didn't do so fairly. And this book asks you to consider it a complicated issue, but I don't think Libdell is prepared to have that complicated discussion. He just asks you to do it and then he doesn't follow through. I was going to say, just to add to that, I think um, exploring Brian's backstory and cultivating that further, that's a good idea. Uh, And that's kind of overdue. So again, there's a good impulse there. Yeah, for the first page and a half. Sure. Exactly. (laughs) Because it it doesn't happen here either. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I mean, bringing up some of the stuff from Brian's backstory to kind of try to flesh out that character, because the Darkmoor stuff, I believe, is from the Claremont, like original Captain Britain stuff, is it not? Oh, I think so. It has been forever since I read it. It's been forever since I've read most of that stuff too, but I did look it up for the podcast to see when this had first appeared. Coming out next year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I believe it first appears like in the 1976 Chris Claremont, Captain Britain, like Darkmoor first appears, but it becomes the Darkmoor nuclear facility um, around this time. We had it appear in a previous comic, it appeared in the Demon Druid issue as well. So it's, you know, fleshing out the world in a way. And I won't say I like, but I appreciate you know, as much as heavy handed as it is, the reminder that Brian is a scientist, because we've actually complained about that on the podcast before we've complained, everybody forgets about his scientific background, this is one of his central conflicts. And that conflict is brought to the fore here. And in theory, that's interesting. And yet the ways that it gets dropped are very strange, because in theory, I like that conflict too, you know, with Brian being the establishment figure, and everybody else on the team is on the side of the protesters, basically, right? Because they all identify as outsiders, you know, whether they're right or wrong. Yeah, but, but then it's like little little details like the fact yeah. that the book doesn't know what a physicist does. Like yeah. literally, <laughs> that's a problem. Like it, it it opens up with or that he later earned a master's degree in physics from the Thames University in in London. But Lovedell, as a writer, seems to think that being a, that having a master's in physics makes you an a structural engineer or something like he's like it, it, it's not clear what it just feels like oh i don't know some sciencey stuff you know like it doesn't it, it doesn't seem clear where they're going with that or what exactly is supposed to be happening with you know why is arnim zola <laughs> even doing this to who this guy is like like these seem like characters that were again chosen at random from the official handbook to the marvel universe i i don't feel like there's any logic here at all well, yeah, I want to pack the and unpack the ending specifically, but before we get off this sort of nuclear power conversation, I mean, it both doesn't understand the issues, but then is really weirdly heavy-handed too. Like, yeah. I'm looking mm-hmm. at page four where you have mm-hmm. Brian shouting, and he has the dialogue: "You idiots! We need nuclear power in order to prevent the strip mining of our natural resources." <laughs> it's like, I mean, what? I mean, you're not wrong. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think you understand that, but okay. 
But I mean, Andrew, you brought up how weird Kitty's opposition is in this argument. I mean, did you want to talk about that a little bit more? Because it is strange, this disagreement between them. It really read as strange, and I didn't have a good sense of what it was trying to do other than to stage two sides of an argument in which neither side is really right or wrong, which could be productive in theory, but here it just reads as muddy to me. Yeah, I like the idea from a character dynamic perspective. I I think when we are exploring Brian's scientific background, it's fun to have Kitty oppose him. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the other kind of she's the scientist too yeah. exactly <laughs> there, there's a there's a great way to sort of um, make a more complex argument about science um the way this book presents nuclear powers is propaganda bad like it's <laughs> it's in the hands of mad scientists the good characters think it's evil so it's being it doesn't involve torturing clones the, the fail safe <laughs> is not a monster <laughs> you know what i mean all of it is, is just it, like it, it's wrong and kitty should know that because the people who know smart. about nuclear power are people who've read something about <laughs> nuclear power and know how much safer and cleaner it is compared to fossil fuels. So it was but she doesn't, she, Well, she doesn't weird. actually, like, she doesn't stand up for fossil fuels. I, I don't know that it takes, she, she's just standing generically against. Yeah, she never nu- clarifies at all. She just yeah, says it's and, poop or something like that. And she would know that. <laughs> That's my problem with it. Like, yeah, like, and, and she wouldn't speak about it if she didn't know about it right because that's not who kitty is uh-huh. <laughs> and, it's, and, it, and it's just there's so much that's weird about it especially for it to just kind of go away once it's done like they're arguing about it and i think there's a, an argument to be had that can be intellectual but the fact that it's not clear what brian even does with his sciencey background it's not clear how this nuclear power is supposed to work that involves cloning and monsters i i don't know why the plant's being yeah. shut down other than the, the fact reactor's that, gonna blow every time in a story it, about nuclear power yeah like or but like why why are we even you know what were they called there for well the plant's gonna go under okay well the plant goes under a nuclear power plant going under is actually a really really big deal you can't just like leave yes. it there, you know? <laughs> like you can't just you know that's not like a like a thing it's little details like that should kitty understand this yes because she's not a she's not I mean, she's a teenager and this book wants her to be just a teenager who would protest because you know you know you liberal kids you don't know anything but that's not kitty kitty is as much honestly more of a scientist than brian is so she should understand that even to have the other take on it but kitty also shouldn't say stuff like nuclear power is the pits man because she's not a 14 year old from 1942 you know like 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 her dialogue even is just weird i mean i think oh god i hate that i'm almost defending the comic but (laughs) i think that there's like a cultural thing going on here too though in terms of brian's attitude toward nuclear power versus the attitude of the primarily american superheroes who are also on his team you know with the exception of megan and i mean i know kurt's not american but he functions as american in terms of coming from the american x-men because when he's talking about the strip mining of our natural resources and everything i mean you're talking about shifts over you know from coal power in like the british context and that is a specific cultural context and i have no idea whether lobdell would have that to be bringing that to this comic book so i don't want to give it too much credit but that is a place that we could have gone with this and a more interesting take on this story i mean i guess a lot of them are or a few of the members are just upset of the idea of like are we here to hit unarmed protesters and you know (laughs) valid point since it's never entirely clear why they did come to yell. I was un- I was unclear about that as well. Yeah, it was just because Walsh called them and it was like a favor was sort of what I understood, but I don't did Walsh call them? I think Brian just saw it on TV. 
Oh, and he just decided to go over there? Yeah, because Walsh seems surprised. To, it's like, oh, Brian, you're here. And he even says, oh, you, you remember me. And, he, and he's uh, like, he's like, yeah, I actually do remember you. Brian Braddock seems surprised that Walsh knows who he is as Brian yeah, Braddock. Yeah, so, oh, that's right. So, yeah. so I don't, I, yeah, I don't think he was, I don't think they were called. I think Brian saw this protest on TV and was like, we have to go superhero now, which is a fine thing to happen. If that, if it's thought through, I like talky books. So if you tell me there's a book where, you know, two characters debate the ethical nature of superheroing, I'm all about that. I mean, I get that nobody will buy it, but me, but sure, you know, <laughs> but this, this isn't that people are dumb not because the story needs them to be dumb, not because their characters are dumb. People are dumb because it's not thought all the way through. Like the okay, another point where Kitty says, "What about the people's right to assemble?" Hey, Megan, do the people in Britain have the right to assemble? She's oh lived here God. two years. Yeah, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> like she's not a, she's not an idiot, and she's been living here for two years. She knows basic principles of like you know law <laughs> like 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 i don't even know how to, like it's not it's not this isn't like weird and obscure like you know it, this is like just very basic tenets of british democracy of course she knows this <laughs> well the protester thing is within kind of a long tradition of them doing protesters really not well in superhero comics i mean going all the way back to you know spider-man crisis on the campus right oh yeah I hate and, yeah, <laughs> because it's kind of the same it's not really that different here right because no. the protesters originally were kind of on their side and by the end of the issue it turns out they're like crappy people and they just get made fun of and so it tries to have it both ways in terms of protesting nuclear powers and exercise in your civil rights and maybe they have a point but by the end of the comic you see that the protesters are just fools and brian is the one who gets all the pathos and sympathy as his robot nuclear scientist mentor <laughs> dies so all the subtlety kind of gets thrown out the window in that crucial final third of this comic book god <laughs> Well, do we want to just talk about it? Because I mean, we keep we keep kind of talking around it. This climax of this comic book, such as it is, I don't even know where to start. I really don't. It's just I mean, thing after thing. There's clones and a monster and an evil robot who is part of the evil robot that you know, but maybe don't know. Because um, it's not like Arnim Zola is a big character. Again, I'm a nerd, a comic book nerd in, in 1991 who literally read the entire official handbook to the Marvel Universe for fun. I read every issue. I've memorized it um and that's why you end up in grad school kids um so <laughs> so, so like i but like he's he's an obscure character and then they're like but it's not actually arnim zola it's another guy and it's captain britain's mentor <laughs> who we've never mentioned before and by the way let's do cloning cloning's a thing right does it work like this i don't know you know <laughs> like I guess they're non-sentient clones that he's raising to be batteries like in the Matrix, even though the Matrix isn't out yet. What is going on? And then there's this monster that's not body bag, but, you know. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's just in. Yeah. What, what's that? It's the monster that we keep in the, in the machine as a failsafe. You know, the way machines work with monsters. What are you talking about? Everything in here is just crazy. Uh, it's. Well, there's so many, like, just weird things. Like, why does the robot start showing itself with a full beard halfway through? <laughs> so that Brian recognizes them? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's so weird. 
To a certain extent, I can imagine that some of these choices are just made to try to create a visual spectacle, right? And I mean, we haven't talked that much about Ross's art here. I actually liked Ross's art on a couple of the previous issues. I liked it on the Nightcrawler adventure story. I liked it, you know, with some reservations on the Rachel story we had in the last issue slash episode. And I just, it's not a good fit for the story, you know? I think those gothic elements of his art can be effective and interesting and it's not working for me here because you can think about things like that page where they're revealing the clones right and it's supposed to be this kind of dramatic horror image and it's not awful like it's done in an acceptable way here but are a lot of the choices just made here just to have something interesting visual to draw i mean we do that a lot in superhero comics but it's just the mileage on that varies and here just there's not a lot of logic just linking any of it together, right? I don't think he cares. I think he knows he signed up to to draw a bad story. So, like, you know, there's barely any backgrounds. There's there's so little care put in this because he must know that this makes no sense. So, okay, you're talking about the, the panel on page 20 where the, you know, where you've got a little bit of gothic horror. And I think that could be something. But then when he's yanking at his face at the end, that's poorly drawn. And when he just rips his body in half to show his robot party on page 22, why? I don't know. Like, like there's no reason for it. He's like, oh, okay, I guess the jig is up. I've spent 40 years in this body pretending to be human, but you know, you asked me a question. So now I'm going to re- reveal I'm a robot and by and ripping have, my body in half. Why? I've not been doing my upkeep for no particular reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's like, you know, why is he all rusty under the skin? It raises so many questions. Nothing about this makes sense. Nothing. It's just, I don't understand why this decision's made. And by the way, he talks like a robot now. Once he, because, so was the skin stopping the, the green robot voice balloons from happening? I, I don't understand any of it, any of it at all. And I'm supposed to feel, you know, like Brian's got this look of horror. It's like, oh, my mentor, you know, so I'm supposed to feel bad for this person whom I've never seen before in any comic ever. So I have no relationship to this. I I, I feel nothing. I, I And I don't know why I'm supposed yeah. to. I laughed at the end of this <laughs> story. And that's not, that's not what they were going for. <laughs> I know, but it's hard not to. Because, I mean, you know, if we go through this, like, section after section, right? Like, we just talked about the clones part and the ripping the skin off part. Then, before the arrival of the shepherd, we get this part where Kitty just decides she's going to take out this robot guy and i don't know why she thinks this is a good idea it's just a way to escalate the conflict that's all it is so she puts her hand through him and that kind of screws him up and that's what releases the shepherd i mean it's just so but not enough it doesn't it doesn't completely work so her powers are either weaker or stronger and why yeah yeah i don't know why any decisions are made you asked what makes a bad comic that's what makes a bad comic not a bad comic it's what makes a bad story telling a story being a writer when i I teach a writing class i i teach that writing is about choices whether you're doing fiction or poetry or or writing a an essay for a college essay or writing a comic writing is about the choices you make choices were not made here things were just done it, it, it's like a fever dream it's like i don't know and what happens next i don't know he rips his skin off why I, we don't have time to think think about this and kitty will um phase through the the esp box why because it's a thing she can do no decisions were made no logic pervades this story it's just a collection of images that are meaningless to me Okay, I want to turn us to talking about something potentially interesting in this comic book, which is the villain known as Sandman, who I've got a sort of a fascination with, and I've got a sort of a fascination with the nature of his powers, which, you know... 
I'm happy to let everybody else weigh in first, but I'm going to propose the very academic, very succinct question. Are Sandman's powers totally fucked up? Because the answer to that is yes, but I think it's interesting to talk about why. I'm curious where you're going with it. Well... There's a number of things. The fact that he can like completely deform his body is really interesting to me. But also there's things like when he's using his powers, everybody swallowed him in this comic. Yes. And that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, he's a cloud of dust and everybody is choking on dust, but that's his body. And we even get a reference to the fact that his powers are penetrative because that's how Megan kills the robot she uses sandman's powers which she is somehow able to shapeshift into which is not really there's questions there too but she specifically says that she enters him to shut down his powers Uh so the penetrative nature of sandman's powers interests me on a variety of levels but it could be that i'm the only one that's interested in that so we don't necessarily have to talk about it That is canon how his powers work. So just to do Spider-Man lore, because it actually matters. I didn't know I was going to be talking about this, but but Sandman and another Spider-Man villain called Hydro-Man, who has the exact same powers as Sandman, except for he's water. So Sandman and Hydro-Man are sometimes allies, and then they become natural enemies when Spider-Man is fighting them and they accidentally collide and become a mud creature because once they're they were mixed so thoroughly their consciousnesses melded into a disturbing creature and they're both and it takes them apparently months to disambiguate themselves from each other and they hate each other now the questions that you're having about like what does this mean to be swallowed or enveloped or you know sucked into another creature yeah that's part of the sandman story you are meant to think about that And it leads to so many questions. You are right. If part of Sandman is taken away temporarily, which has happened, what, you know, where is the real Sandman? Where is his real consciousness? There are a lot of questions that one can ask about the philosophical, what is it to be if your body is a dispersible force? And, you know, it's part of a larger conversation about hero powers and villain powers, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. okay, so when I talk about him in this book chapter that I did about 60s Fantastic Four, I talked about the differences in fluidity between Mr. Fantastic and Sandman. So what makes Mr. Fantastic's fluidity redeemable, and I talked about this in the context of kind of like Cold War fears of Soviet fluidity, um, which are very gendered and, you know, linked to sexuality as well. But Mr. Fantastic can always reconstitute his body into a human shape and he always maintains some semblance of his human shape you know he'll take on sort of dramatically fluid forms but he's always got kind of a human face and body whereas sandman's fluidity is much more destabilizing and unstable you know his body does completely deform he often doesn't have a human shape at all his body penetrates the bodies of other people and a common thing that you see with him and it happens in this comic as well is that he's using his body to envelop and choke people mm-hmm. Which is, you know, it's interesting and it's interesting the way that that type of fluidity isn't as redeemable as other types of fluidity because of the ways that it's unstable. And, you know, I do in the chapter and, you know, it's getting kind of esoteric, but in the chapter I do kind of a reading of that in terms of feminist philosophy and how different types of fluidity read differently in terms of sexuality and gender. So his more fluid fluidity is more connotative of femininity but it's also connotative of fears of homosexuality especially in the cold war era 
So people thought about the Soviet menace as being this kind of fluid threat, that it was going to sort of infiltrate the American society and, you know, be this invisible threat that was going to contaminate people. And during what we called the Pink Scare, which is part of the Cold War, sort of rooting out homosexuals in the State Department, it was very much talked about in a similar way, that homosexuality was a fluid infection that was going to take people over, right? So when we think about some of the threats of fluidity in that context and where this character comes from, there is a lot of interesting sex and gender stuff bound up in this character, which I'm not saying that that's intentional in the comic at hand, but it's certainly something I always think about when this character shows up. <laughs> and that's my spiel about Sam. <laughs> I think you're right. I think that's all there. I don't think I don't think this book is smart enough to do anything with it. I mean, no, like, I know. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, he sprays himself all over all over everybody and they suck him in. And like there there is clear metaphors here that I don't think are done with any sort of intention or consequence or thought whatsoever. Why does he do this? Because I read the handbook to the Marvel universe and it says that's what his powers are. So we're going to do it. And like, I don't know, turn the page. We'll, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> like, it, like you said, Megan takes his powers. How'd she do that? I don't know. I, I don't know at all. And I don't know that it matters, but it matters in as much as once again, like this book does not understand how air works for Prowler's powers. <laughs> like they, Kitty and Kitty and Prowler have this weird <laughs> conversation about pneumatics that makes no, no sense. Like, oh, you can use pneumatics to reconstitute, to, to reconstitute molecules. No, no, you cannot. That's not what they do. What are you talking about? <laughs> Well, I mean, one of my complaints to, I mean, this gets best back to a question that we had at the beginning of the podcast, which is that, you know, what makes it an effective, you know, team on team fight, right? And to me, it's when you have an interesting opposition of powers. So when I think about, you know, the Sandman fight that I analyze in that chapter, it's, you know, you have the thing's solidity opposing Sandman's fluidity. And that's interesting because, you know, the thing's power is neutralized by the fact that Sandman can't be touched. And then you have Mr. Fantastic's fluidity versus Sandman's fluidity, right? And you can see how that interacts. You can see how fire interacts with sand. Sue doesn't get a lot to do in that story because it's 60s Fantastic Four, and that was yep. pretty typical of the era. But anyway, in theory, <laughs> when you have sort of teams of superheroes teaming up, you can have these oppositions of bodies and collisions of bodies, and it becomes a philosophical debate about which types of embodiment represent in relation to other types of embodiment you know i mean you can think about when somebody has telepathic powers versus somebody who has physical powers and how those two things can sort of interact and collide and in theory that's what you should have in a really good sort of like team on team battle and it's just i can see them trying for it here i mean you get you know nightcrawler interacting with sort of the quick one and stuff like that but it's just not coming across here and the Captain Britain Sandman fight is particularly not interesting to me for all those reasons I kind of said because there are a lot of more interesting things that you can do with that sort of opposition between solidity and fluidity that it's just not coming across here and it's frustrating. You didn't find the discussion of British ethnic oh. slurs fascinating? Okay like ethnic slur that was like yeah. that gave me pause. <laughs> That was like a little bit like step back maybe and like on the offense there, Brian. I mean, I think there is something interesting you could have done with that. Like Captain Britain's background as this upper class science guy against the working class Sandman. Like there's something that you could get there that would be slightly more interesting. Yes, exactly. Well, that would I mean be like... slightly, much more interesting than... Much yeah. more interesting. I mean, a debate over blimey and 
golly gee whiz. From someone who thinks that children still say it's the pits. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't think Lavdell, someone told, someone just told him, you know, they don't really say blimey. He's like, ah, I can write about that. That's how that happened. <laughs> well, do we want to talk about Megan being the one who actually kills Walsh? Because in theory, this should be an important character beat. I mean, in a different comic, it would be a huge character moment for Megan for good or ill. But did you have thoughts about that at all, Andrew? I know that your thought is going to be it wasn't handled well here and we're just going to ignore this comic as canon. But in theory, this could be an interesting and important moment for her. Yeah, I actually liked it. Um, I I think the idea of Megan sort of um, using her powers violently, but from a position of empathy. I think that's a really cool read for her character. Again, just based on some of the things that we're going to see cultivated from her later uh, and a little bit that we've maybe seen already. Um, So so having her do something that's kind of shocking to Brian in particular, uh, that was, you know, righteous and necessary and based specifically on an emotional connection uh, using her superpowers to another human being. I like that. That's, that's very Fae to me. Uh, So I think we're potentially going in a really cool direction with Megan. Uh, Exactly. As you said, it's not, really dealt with and it won't be really dealt with but we have seen megan contemplating her monstrosity in other ways and i think this is a nice way to kind of um marry those two concepts of you know the the monstrosity and the supernatural element of it in a meaningful way but again would have to be cultivated more to really stick for me yeah because it's all kind of happening in one panel but there's an interesting super sexual element (laughs) of that too because she takes on sandman's powers and even if we read the dialogue of it right you use sandman's power to enter zola to totally disrupt his circuits with your sand my powers are empathic once i was inside him i knew it had to be done he wanted to be destroyed ryan so that the rest of (laughs) us could live okay excalibur question does her empathic power work on robots uh, that's a good question undetermined <laughs> yeah claremont's gone and <laughs> so and he wasn't great about maintaining consistency with megan megan's powers are what do we need them to be at this moment in this comic and we might you know change our minds later on in this very story that happens all the time like she's very inconsistent and i, I don't think Lavdell knows and I don't and I can't blame him as much for this one because he doesn't have a lot of places to turn, but it would be weird for it to work on a random robot. On the other hand, how advanced is he as a robot? Because, you know, no one knew. For me, I think just raising these sexual possibilities with Megan that I know are never going to be dealt with in an interesting way almost makes me angry. I'm like, wait, she can become sand and totally fluid and like penetrate people. And this raises a lot of questions. I mean, interesting questions, but I just, we're never going to get them dealt with. So I'm almost no. angry to raise them and <laughs> not deal with them. If we brought Grant Morrison on to write the book, they'd be dealt with, but. <laughs> Perhaps, and, yes. No, and yeah. nothing else. It would just be all this. All right. Final thoughts. Other things that we wanted to talk about that didn't. I feel like we actually haven't heard from you for a while, Michael. So I will give you a first stab at some final thoughts, some moments or issues that you are desperate to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about. So in very broad strokes, I do like the Nightcrawler and what's his name? Rocket Racer? Yes, Rocket. I do like the the idea that he's just like, yeah, the guy has a, a surfboard. I, I can beat him. Like just a quick like three panel fight. Like, yeah, I can do this. I kind of like that approach that it's like, usually these matchups are, oh, we've got these characters of even powers. And no, no, you're just done. Go sit down. (laughs) (laughs) 
But yeah, I mean, I feel like he's trying to care, carry through that kind of comedic nightcrawler self-reflexive voice that he did in Excalibur number 31, and it doesn't work as well here, but I can see kind of what he's trying to do. I mean, my nightcrawler thing that I liked is that I liked when he's called Night Creature instead of Nightcrawler, because yeah. that just made me really like laugh, and I don't know why. It's like, it's the name that the generic Nightcrawler knockoff would be... <laughs> If you you know, you, you, your grandma accidentally your bought grandma you the buys. wrong action figure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, so good. And I kind of love that. And I'm going to think about that randomly and laugh. So this comic gave me that. So at least there's that. Um, Andrew or Mav, final thoughts? I found myself dissociating a lot when reading this comic to the point where I was like picking up on weird random threads. When Rocket Racer came on and they're exploring his powers, I'm like, I wonder if he has ever fought Night Thrasher from the New Warriors. Because that'd be fun to see. <laughs> yeah. And I then when Prowler shows up, because <laughs> when Prowler shows up, my, my dumb, dumb brain is like, oh, sweet, maybe we're going to get Miles. And there's so many yeah. reasons why that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so prowler is a very different character in the ultimate universe and into the spider-verse um which was probably how most people kind of know him now but it's not the same character here very different backstory and but he's got the beginnings of that i mean he's got that backstory in 91 and it's just that labdell hadn't read any of them like <laughs> yeah, he's not yeah. <laughs> like, like like i don't know you know he's still aaron douglas there, there is like pathos there other final thoughts before we leave this issue behind? No. I mean, the Rachel thing <laughs> no. we already talked about. Yeah, if you're a Rachel fan, I would recommend that you skip Skipping this it. issue. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're Rachel fans, obviously, on the podcast as well, but we are contractually obligated to read all of the issues in our issue by issue podcast otherwise we would probably would skip this issue <laughs> okay. well oh, oh here you go i got time there's a throwaway reference to dr doom as kind of a thing to say you know what would dr doom do here or, you know you do, how would she behave around dr doom that's that's an attempt at, conti uh, at continuity and storytelling that's gonna matter that's all i have to say about it because, because, but it, but it, but it's it, it is intentional foreshadowing oh and, i have one i wanted to okay. talk about the little scene on page 28 when they're saying goodbye to the outlaws and so it's the one where silver sable and kitty are shaking hands and silver sable's like if you ever need some extra cash and then there's the little thought bubble under that that's call me sometime and the speech bubble is supposed to be between paladin and rachel you could just shift it half an inch to the left and it would be between silver sable and kitty which would make so much more sense oh is that what it's supposed to be yeah i, wasn't I sure thought either. it was i thought it was rachel, it was rachel. and sable yeah think i think it's supposed to, to i think it's supposed to be paladin oh, and rachel which is so <laughs> gross oh. i know either one of those would make a lot more sense but i'm pretty sure it's paladin and rachel yeah Oh, <laughs> okay. I've never. I just thought it was odd. Like I, I, okay. I mean, at least I get what he's going for there because nope. of the kiss. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm no. Did not take up her with that sexual assault. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I. I thought like, is it because Rachel is into the idea of maybe being a bounty hunter? That. Yeah. That's what I had thought. And, and what I'm I mean, like, now. I mean, I might want it to be sexy times with between Silver Sable and Rachel. You know, we've both got shiny leather outfits, but I thought it was about like, I thought it was Rachel answering the bounty hunter question. Look how this you try to approve done. the comic with your mind. I mean, I thought <laughs> it would be Kitty and Silver Sable since we just got 
off of girls school from heck and kitty's interested in mean blonde ladies not that silver sable is mean and of course she's got oh, she kind of not blonde hair yeah. <laughs> well, <I don't. laughs> she kind of is mean <laughs> <laughs> and then I also kind of liked, uh, and this is me kind of throwing my guy under the bus a little bit, but we get Nightcrawler with the thought bubble that's like, oh, Katchen has such a big heart. She'd forgive Dr. Doom if she had the chance. That's There's your Dr. Doom reference. And I like that from him because it's the relationship between Kitty and Kurt, but it can also be read as, again, if I shift that little thought bubble over to Silver Sable and Kitty, you know, him just being like, oh, Kitty's just so nice. And it's like, oh boy, you're not seeing what's really going on here, are you? And he's a little bit... <laughs> ignorant of the of the queer desires going on here so there's multiple ways that we could read that scene in a superior comic all right before we completely wrap up i am going to do a sword strokes letter because we haven't had the sword strokes letters page in quite a while and there's a pretty good one here i always like to spotlight letters from female identified letter writers so this one is from michelle Shadowcat uh chaussie i believe um from illinois Dear Swordstrokes, I just wanted to tell you to keep up the great work you're doing on my very favorite comic, Excalibur. I started reading it occasionally when it first came out, and being a girl of 15 at the time, that was pretty unusual, reading comics that is. I started reading Excalibur more frequently this year, and I think it's the best! Triple exclamation marks. My boyfriend got me interested in the comic even before it came out. He told me I looked like Kitty Pride. I, of course, had to know who she was. So, when the first issue of Excalibur came out, he bought it and showed me the girl by whose name he called me. By this time, quite a few of my my friends called me Shadowcat. I noticed my resemblance and immediately fell in love with Excalibur. Thank you for all the great issues and keep them coming. You now have a faithful reader. Thanks to my boyfriend and your great writing. Until Rachel looks better than Kitty, make mine marvel. <laughs> so I don't we kind of joked a little bit around about this letter when I sent it around, but I'll, I'll do the editor response too. Thanks for saying such nice things, Michelle, or would you prefer Shadowcat? We don't hear from our female readers as often as we'd like, and you're not Kitty's only fan. Read on, and then we get a little bit of a thirst ode to Kitty, but I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> what must I do now? Kill them? I can tell you nothing. My days are ending. The gods of once are gone, forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now, more than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? No. <laughs> there are other worlds. This one is done with me. So, Michael, thank you so, so much for helping us, uh, and particularly me, through this particularly challenging issue. Um, <laughs> I had so much fun chatting with you about it, um, so much more fun than I had reading it. But before we go, you must remind our lovely listeners about where they can find you on the internet and some of the fab things that you get up to. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. It was a blast. Uh, you can hear me and... Anna and Andrew on the three panel contrast where we compare and contrast two comics in particular next. We're gonna be looking at 
the Disney adaptation, as well as the Junji Ito adaptation of Frankenstein. And as sort of a weird celebration of that, I've been posting a review of a Frankenstein-related <laughs> comic every day for the past month on our Twitter feed. That's at three panel contrast with the number three rather than the word. Check it out. Yeah, and there's been a lot of Frankenstein comics, Michael, and I really admire your dedication to this bit. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much again, Michael, for joining us. So nice to have you as our first returning guest. Mm -hmm. Nice to be here. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 38, discussing Excalibur 37, House Call. Dr. Doom is in it. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that it'll be good, but Dr. Doom will be in it. And we somehow managed to recruit another super amazing guest for that episode, meaning we will, as always, make the most of what we've got. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another explosive conversation thank you michael for helping us phase through it all thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out forever in the I, I, I don't know. I feel that there were a lot of long pauses, and those will get.